They said you always have to preach these two together. Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Now we all know one of the, you know, if we have a mantra, it's this. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or justified through faith alone, right? Justification by, by faith alone is the, is the essence of the gospel, if you were to break it down to a phrase. But faith is always coupled together with repentance, because where there is no repentance, there is no faith, and where there is faith, there is always repentance. What we're always careful about in a church like this is to make sure that you don't make your repentance the instrumental or the material cause of your salvation. Repentance comes by a work of the Spirit of God. It's an effect of faith, but it is not faith itself. You're saved by believing the gospel, but repentance always comes with it. That's one of the reasons that he says these things here. Now, if you notice in those verses where he's talking about baptism and he tells them to repent and be baptized, what some churches have done in history is taken the salvific aspect and they've put it with the baptism instead of with the repentance. So that's what we have to be careful about. It's not the washing of water. It's not just the cleaning of the body that saves us. It's Christ that saves us through faith. And this faith inevitably produces in us this thing, this aspect of sanctification that we call repentance. I want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 today. Uh, a lot of you love King David. He's one of the most amazing characters in literary history. Even the secular world loves to make movies about him. The kids' companies love to make cartoons about him. It's such a great story, right? But we have to remember that there was not one great sin of David. There were several great sins. One of the things that if we really want to understand the Bible and what it's trying to teach us is it gives us entire lifetimes of people there to see their ups and downs, to see their great glories when they were killing giants, but also their great failures when they were destroying their lives and the lives of the people around them. Why does the Bible give us such a pretty and ugly view of people? Because it's a real book meant for real people that are going to go through a real life. So we have to be careful about these things. If you remember, David got into trouble with Bathsheba. That's not actually what we're focusing on, but David's response to these things and God's response to David's response through these things. So we understand what happened before that. Now at verse 10, here's what God says in response to these things. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This is possibly some of the most terrifying words in the entire Bible. Now you have to remember, God took David from being nothing, from being just an ignorant shepherd boy who was the least of account by his father, and he raised him up to being a king. He gave him everything that he wanted, and even says, If you had needed more, I would have gave it to you. Give it. Given. So now God says this, And I will therefore take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now here's the powerful part of this and the part that you don't want to miss. There are many reactions to God lowering the boom on somebody in the Bible, aren't there? People get what they've got coming, right? 
David, in a way, is getting what he got, he's got coming. But he gives the Christian response to the fact that he sinned. His repentance is found in his confession of his sin. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. You're right. I'm wrong. Nathan, I can't deny it. God sees everything. Everything that I thought was in secret is really laid bare before him. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now we see this correspondently in the New Testament over and over again, like where Peter is preaching to them and he's telling them that repentance comes with faith. And he's telling them their sins will be forgiven. And he's telling them this is for you and for your children and all whom the Lord our God will call, even those far off. And by far off, I don't think he means distance. I think he means us. So in this, it doesn't say a lot about his action here. But it says the Lord has already forgiven him. And frankly, I find that that's the most disturbing thing about this passage. Well, the Lord's a little quick to forgive sometimes, isn't it? Don't we want to see him put through his paces? Don't we want to see him like lying on the floor, wallowing in anguish, crying? And, you know, we, I mean, we forgive people, right? We're Christians. But frankly, we would like to see a little more wallowing. Right? Especially if they want forgiveness from us, there's going to have to be some blood, sweat, and tears involved in that kind of thing, right? We want to see a little, we want to see a little visible suffering from folks, right? But the Lord here, he's already told him what's going to happen. It's not that he's light on the punishment. It's that this is his son. His intention is not to destroy David, and David's intention is not to blow off the Lord. If you remember, this whole story with David actually started with Samuel the prophet. And Samuel the prophet was born basically because of the intrigues and the insolence of Eli, the high priest of the prophet. And Eli would not correct his son. And so he's told by Samuel, even when he's a young boy, I'm going to bring about a punishment and I'm going to wipe out your line. And Eli's response, notably, is not, I have sinned against the Lord. His response is, let the Lord do what's right to me. There was no repentance coupled with his faith. And it's terrifying to us to think that a pastor or a prophet or one of these seers or somebody that knows spiritual things could not have a real and true and saving faith. But that's the implication that has to do with Eli. It's not the implication with David. I've told you a couple times, and maybe you remember this. I remember we were going to Upland Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. My mom's back there. She's starting to look at me. Oh, don't talk about me. Wait a minute. <laughs> this is all shifted in the bathroom. No, but it was a nice church, but uh, I had this Sunday school teacher, and she and she was she was like David could not have made it to heaven. Man, he was such a sinner, right? Some people have these lists of people in the Bible that could not have made it to heaven. You know, frankly, if you're going to use that kind of math, a lot of y'all would not be going there either, right? Uh, David is accounted by God at the end of his life as a righteous man, even including all of his sins. Not righteous in himself. Not that he never failed. But his righteousness was in Christ. And when he failed, he repented, and he tried to make things right, and he moved on. And that's really all we can do, right? A lot of us have these ideas about the punishment of God, like he's some kind of a vindictive, aggressive, you know, mean-spirited person up there in heaven waiting for us to fail and such. And you don't get the sense of that from Scripture at all. Now, David is a great man who was given greater greatness than any of us will ever conceive. Therefore, his punishments were greater also. And yet it says right in the text, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That's what he says to every one of us, doesn't he? 
someone going back to that from verse 17 in the book of Acts. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophet, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. And times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament, same God, same methodology. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So there's this thing that happened in David's family, right? He said, it's going to be through your family, because you messed up that guy's family. There's going to be consequences. Not because I don't love you, but because you got to learn. And so David breaks the law of God three different times in three different ways. There's a few things he told the kings of Israel to not do. Frankly, all of them did it, but that's not the point. The point is God said not to do it, right? First thing was to multiply wives. David has this first wife, you know, do you remember when David was still just the boy and he goes off to the battle line because his father tells him, I want you to deliver these bribes to the captains that are over your brothers because I want them to come back to the farm with me. I don't want to lose one of my boys. So David's sent there not to be a warrior. He's sent there to deliver bribes of food and cheese and stuff to the captains that are over his own men. And his brothers say to him, what have you come here to watch the real men do battle? And David goes to the captains and he says, what will the king give to the guy who kills this giant? I want you to know something about ambition. There's godly and ungodly ambition. Ungodly ambition is for yourself and your own glory and all of those things. Godly ambition is to want to do what God wants done. And so David goes in there and he says, what do we get if we kill the giant? He's kind of like, God's on my side. I don't think there's anything I can't pull off if I put my mind to it. And they say to him, well, he'll, he'll make his father's estate free from taxes. And David doesn't say anything about this. He's kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever. What else? He says he will let the king marry his daughter. And this interests David. Because if you marry a princess, what are you? You're a prince, right? And God had already let him know through Samuel, because he'd already been ordained, anointed, in the chapter before, that he was going to be king. And so maybe God is doing this thing. And so he has things invested in him before he goes up to the giant. Eventually he kills the giant, and the giant and the king is supposed to give him his firstborn daughter. That brings him into the line of the monarchy, right? Does he give him his firstborn daughter? You remember? It's tricky. The king basically says, my first daughter's awesome. And I'm not giving him to her. But I've got this other daughter, and it says this in the text. Michal will be a snare to his soul. This might be giving you all chills. It's pretty crazy, right? That's what it says in the text. Does Michal become a snare to him? She does. He doesn't have children with Michal. Basically, she divorces him. Like two years after they get married, and goes back to her father. And then she comes out and marries his best friend. It's publicly humiliating to him. But God said, do not multiply wives, and eventually David starts to have more than one wife. And what happens is, the brothers that are born from the different women, Amnon and Absalom. Absalom's more famous, but Amnon is the oldest, and he's in line for the throne. They start to war with each other. And it says here that Amnon attacks the sister of Absalom. And there's a powerful thing here. In verse 20, it says, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon been with you? 
Now you hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take us to heart. So Tamar, his sister, had to live with him as a desolate woman in, in her brother's house. And when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. But he would not punish Amnon because he loved Amnon. Because Amnon was his firstborn. The second great sin of David. Now this should, this should grab us. What's going on here, right? He neither did correct him, the same as Eli didn't correct his sons, but also with that, he did not punish. Who is the main law enforcement official of the entire country? The king. The king, right? It's his job to do this on many levels, as the prophet, as the priest, as the king, and as the father. And so the consequences of this unfold. Eventually, Absalom gets his revenge. Verse 26. Then Absalom said, if, you, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why, shouldn't, why should he not go with you? But Absalom pressed him, and Amnon and all the king's sons went with him. And Absalom commanded his servants, okay, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, in other words, we're going to get him good and drunk. When I say you strike Amnon and you kill him, and you do not fear because I have commanded you, be courageous and valiant, because they all know that when Amnon's dead, who's next in line to be king? Absalom. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded, that all the king's son arose and mounted their mounts, and they fled. God had already told him, look, the sword is never going to lose your, leave your house, and all your trouble is going to come up from within your own household. And now it's unfolding in Scripture. So if you think David got off easy, David's not getting off easy. But the Lord is doing it his way and doing exactly what he thinks should be done. Second Samuel 16. When David came to Bahrain, behold, a man was coming out. Verse 5. From there at the house of Saul, and his name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And he was coming out and cursing the name of David. This is after Absalom has chased his father and his father's household out of Jerusalem because he's taking over. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and the warriors on his right and left. This is what Shimei said when he cursed him. Go away, go away with you man of bloodshed. You're a worthless man. The Lord has brought back upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have become king. And the Lord has handed your kingdom over to your son Absalom. And behold, you are caught in your own evil. You're a man of blood. You guys know David, right? David seemed like a passive kind of guy to you in the Bible. Do you remember the bride price that he had to get in order to marry Michal? Oh, it's terrible. The king told him, bring me a hundred foreskins of Philistines. I don't know how you get those. Maybe at the market? I don't know. No, you basically got to kill 100 men, right? And he brought him 200 just to show how hardcore he was. David was one of the mighty men. The reason they call the mighty men David's mighty men is because David was a mighty man. Mighty man of war, mighty man of valor. He had killed 1,000 men. He had been in 100 battles against the Philistines and against giants. He was not a guy to be contended with. Do you understand? Uh, sometimes you see these guys, you know, these mighty men, like... Uh, uh, who's that Scottish guy who's from Ireland? What's his name? <laughs> the fighter. MMA. Um, Conor McGregor and these guys, you know. I wouldn't fight him for all the money in the world. 
He like breaks people's faces off and stuff. Me and the kids, we, we go through the uh, uh, the history of these things and how fighting has changed. You guys, you guys that watch these things will all know fighting has changed amazingly. You know, you go back a hundred years or more than a hundred years. And hey, Ian, who's that boxer we were watching that uh, documentary on? John L. Sullivan. Uh, after John L. Sullivan, but uh, like these guys were little, right? Uh, can't remember his name. Anyway, these boxers, the heavyweight boxers from around 1900 and late 1800s, they were usually about 5'5", five, five, and on average, 170 pounds. They were smaller than most of the guys in here, right? And when they got into a fight at the greatest uh, 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 heavyweight fight that happened in history in the 1890s, it went on for 27 rounds. These guys were tough and they were hardcore, but it was different, right? And you look at them and they just look like some guy. So it was all heart, spirit, spit, and vinegar. That's what made them tough, right? But it wasn't size. And then you get to like, you know, uh, the era that I started to see people fight in the 1960s and 1970s, and they looked like athletes, right? You got your Joe Frazier's and your Muhammad Ali's and these guys, and they work out, and they're, they just look like a different thing. They're cut, and they're strong, and they know about exercise. And then you get into the 80s and the 90s, and everybody knows about nutrition and drugs. Sports-enhancing drugs. And these guys get huge. And that's where you get, like, your Mike Tyson's and, you know, your Larry Holmes's. And, these and they get big, and they get huge, and they're powerful, and it changes. And then this little slip happened there because, you know, I also grew up like any you know, teenage American boy on Saturday morning uh, martial arts movies, right? Kung Fu and the 27 levels of Shaolin. It's so, <laughs> You guys didn't do this? We're going to have to watch some movies. Okay. Uh, but here's the thing. So it went through and it was actually the Americans that broke the bank on all of that. Because they would have all these guys that were like these priests and stuff, and they knew all these martial arts and stuff, and an American Marine would just go in and beat the snot out of them. They'd be doing all these things, they'd just walk up and knock them out, right? And this brought in some of the things that we now call like MMA and mixed martial arts, where we're just going to do what actually works. We're going to mix wrestling and boxing and some other stuff. I don't even know what, right? So you get down to what's real in fighting. If you require the two men to stand like this, and they can't grab each other or kick each other or wrestle each other, you get a different kind of a sport, don't you? I don't think they do it like this, but you know the old pictures. <laughs> but the MMA guys, and the guys that do the Brazilian, uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and stuff, they like got it down to where, uh, who is the guy, was it Hoist Gracie? Yeah, and he would like beat these huge guys that were great wrestlers and boxers because he was like, I have one goal in this fight, and that is to choke you until you're unconscious. You can hit me all you want, but I'm going to choke you until you're unconscious. And he would just beat all these guys. And then it shifted everything because you get down to what actually works and what's perceived to work, like all of those great moves from Taekwondo and everything and the fancy kicks, it's all very pretty, but those guys just keep getting knocked out. Right? It's very discouraging. But most fights end up on the ground, right? And the great fighters are great fighters because they win great fights. That's basically all it is. In everything in life, there is a practical aspect that you need to grasp. Even in theology and religion, 
There is a what works and what does not work. Religion is not theoretical. It's real and it's practical and it's whole. And the great theological systems that have been made in history that are now dead or dying, the incredible institutions that were made and millions of dollars was put into them to build great buildings made of marble pointing to the sky that are dying, and the denominations that have been around for hundreds of years that now have a few flagging members and are just waiting to fall apart. They're failed because they were Kung Fu. And what they needed was MMA. So even in religion, there's a purity to it, there's a soul, there's a context to it that you have to grasp the real stuff. You really do. But that's why God uses the analogies as battles on an ongoing basis. Because you always knew who was supposed to win a battle. Because they're the ones that won it. Right? So here at this point, there's a man coming out and cursing David, proclaiming his sins before the people. And does David go and chop this guy's head off because he's exactly the kind of guy that would do such a thing, right? Or is he repentant? Here's what it says in verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? In other words, David's right-hand man is like, I'm going to go take care of this. I have had enough of this mess, right? Now let me go over and cut his head off. And the king said, What business of mine is yours, you sons of Zeruiah? If he curses, and the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who should say, Why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out of my own body seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my misery and return good to me instead of cursing this day. So David and his men went down the road, and Shimei kept going along the hillside close to him. And as he went, he cursed and threw stones and dirt at him. How many of you have ever been cursed by somebody? How many of you have ever deserved to be cursed by somebody? Good and had it coming, right? Uh, there's this old proverb. It's not actually in the Bible, but it goes like this. Uh, don't worry too much if men think ill of you. You probably deserve it. People talk about you, and they've got bad things to say about you, and they make judgments about you. In your Christian heart, go to the place of thinking in terms of, if I've done wrong... I've probably got it coming. I'm not actually a perfect man, right? Maybe some of y'all are, but I'm not actually perfect. When somebody has a gripe or complaint with me, there's probably at least some legitimacy to it, right? Can you examine yourself enough to think of why other people would find fault in you? Here, David does that, and he accepts it. He's like, let him curse, because he ain't far off. Now, maybe that's not something you feel like you really want to do. But that's the Christian response, isn't it? Sometimes people curse you because they're just messed up. Sometimes they're just perceptive. Chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. And the wrath of the Lord was again kindled against Israel, but he moved David against them and said, Go and number Israel and Judah. So there were three things he never told the kings never to do. One was multiply wives. Most of the trouble he gets into is by multiplying wives. It should not be a mystery to us that most of the trouble David got into had to do with women. Right? Is that just something that could never happen to a person in politics? 
Uh, for goodness sake, right? Uh, another thing is don't multiply forces, which is a little weird to us in our day, but if God is going to protect you, you don't need superior weaponry. The other thing was don't number your troops. Now for those, a lot of you guys have served in the military, that seems like a bad idea, right? It seemed like a bad idea to him too. First thing you want to know, have you guys ever read like Sun Tzu's Art of War and stuff? You know, they make you read it in college and it turns you into a psychopath. But uh, one of the things it says is, always know how many troops you have and how many your enemy has, right? And know if yours are well-fed and, and theirs are well-fed, or if theirs are poorly fed and yours are well-fed, and know if you can move yours but he can't move his, and it goes through all this stuff, you know, to teach you like how to do war, or perhaps how to be a Presbyterian. I'm not sure which one it is. But, uh, so he goes through all of these different things, and one of the things you do is you know what your forces are like, right? You know the condition, and the morale, and the number of your forces, or you're in big trouble going against anybody, right? And God restricts that from them. He says, you never count your troops. The day you count your troops, you've given up faith in me, and you've started to put faith in what? Your troops. Now that's not for the people of God. That's for the world. To depend on worldly methods to achieve worldly ends. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go speedily now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Bathsheba, the whole country, and number the people that I may know the number of them. And Joab said to the king, The Lord thy God increase the people a hundredfold more than they may be, that the eyes of the Lord the king may see it. But why does the Lord the king desire this thing? In other words, you know, his general, he knows the law. He knows what we don't do. Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king, and they numbered the people. This is that sin of David that we never hear about, right? It seems like a postscript. It's at the end of his life. It's kind of a small story. But this is his third great sin. The first one was Bathsheba. The second one was that he did not order his family well, and he did not restrain his sons. And the third one is this, which affected the entire nation. So when they had gone about all the land, they returned to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab delivered the number and the sum of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 strong men that drew swords. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Then David's heart smoked within him. After that, when he had numbered the people, David said unto the Lord, I have sinned exceedingly. In all that I have done, therefore, Lord, I beg you, take away the trespass of your servant. I have done very foolishly. You notice, Nathan didn't even show up for this one with a story about sheep and stuff. David all by himself figured it out. Isn't this what we do? I have seen so many people come to a place where they don't understand what they did. It's almost like a veil went before their eyes and they just lost track of reality and they've done something that they never would have done and now they're trapped in it, right? Last week we talked about those three levels that the psychologists say that people have. One is the public persona we present to people. The other is the person that people really know, that your family and your close friends know. Then there's your secret self that's inside you that only you know, and that's where the deepest, darkest heart of sin is. But you should know it, and that's what you confess to the Lord, because other people can't see it, but it's in there. Who knows the evil that you would do if you had the actual opportunity to do these things without real consequence, right? 
That's why even when we see men that mess up or do something wrong or end up in jail or something, there's a little bit of compassion. Oh, I'm sorry he's going to jail, but you know, something's got to happen. That little bit of compassion comes from the fact that you might have done the same thing in the same circumstance, right? At the same time, a punishment has to happen. Have any of you heard of the limbic system? That's what they call it in, you know, in, in medicine. We've got you know, our autonomic systems. We've got our limbic system. We've got our forebrain, and we've got our you know, uh, back brain. What is it? It's, or the stimulus. And we've got these automatic drives that happen back here. All of your hunger and uh, you know your breathing happens there. And then your heart continues to beat. You don't think about these things. They just happen. And one of the primary drives that happens back here is your sexual drive or your drive to procreate, right? And it's just running on autopilot there the whole time. David, he had kids with many different women. And it messed up his life incredibly. There's this thing... I know this gets a little weird, but you know how the Bible talks about it. There are natural people and there are spiritual people. There are animals and then man is created and man is distinct from the animals whether he is regenerate or not. Even the man that is not regenerate is created in the nature and the image of God, being able to think in terms of good and evil and being able to know truth from falsehood. But at the same time, the man that is not regenerate is run almost completely by his limbic system. It is all feed and breed and succeed and power and glory. Now, sometimes when people get involved with drugs and alcohol, it's the same thing. They're just denaturing the limbic system by feeding it false and artificial glory and happiness. You're supposed to be happy with the world God made the way that he made it, to the best of your ability. And you're not supposed to want things that are too big for yourself, otherwise you'll be unhappy because God might have decided not to give it to you. But also, you're not supposed to be satisfied with things smaller than he wants to give you. And yet at the same time, if all you want to do is grow in greed and succeed and hunger, you're going to live a very frustrated life. Because God's probably not going to give you everything that you want. Now you have David here, and God gives him everything that he wants, and he can have anything. And in ways, didn't it kind of drive him crazy? Shouldn't you feel good about the fact that God has not given you everything that you want, but he has given you everything that you need? After when David was up in the morning, when the Lord came to the prophet Gad seer, saying, Go unto David, thus saith the Lord, I offer three options. You choose which one, and I will do it to you. So Gad came to David and showed him and said to him, Wilt that thou have seven years of famine come upon the land? Or wilt you flee three months before thy enemies? And following thee, what shall there be? Three days of pestilence on my land. Now advise me, and I will tell the Lord what you said to do. Oh, it's horrific, right? He's actually asking David to choose his own punishment. It's like a... And David said to Gad... I am in a difficult position. Let us fall to the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but never let us fall into the hands of another man. In other words, absolutely don't let us fall into the hands of our enemies. But whatever the Lord wants to do, let him do what's right in his own alley. So the Lord sent a pestilence in Israel from the morning to the evening of the time appointed. And there died from the people, even from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. This is a good and gracious God, the one that you serve. But he does not mess around, and he's not a fool. Right? 
He did what was a sin. He did it before the people. The people were all involved in it. And so God brought about a consequence. David was wise and said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, not the hands of our enemies. Because God is good and gracious and he will do what is right in that circumstance. And when the angel stretched out his house, his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord stopped short and said to the angel that destroyed the people, this is sufficient. Withhold thy hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aruna, the Jebusite. And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and my father's house. So Gad came the same day to David and said to him, Go up, build an altar to the Lord in the threshing floor. And David did what he had been commanded. And Aruna looked up and saw the king and his servants coming toward him and went out and bowed himself before the king with his face on the ground. <clears throat> and the people were forgiven. And the Lord held back his hand. So what we understand from this is that in Christian repentance, even when there's sin, there's a turning from sin. There's the people that they don't want the punishment, but they don't really care about the honor or glory of God. And there are also the people that... They will do just about anything to avoid a punishment, but not for the right reason. In the Christian understanding of these things, we don't repent just to avoid the punishment, but we repent because we were wrong and God is right. So in these things, there's always faith and repentance, and they come together. Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that it would impress upon us this right disposition toward Lord God, honoring you with our lives. That with our faith we honor you. Let us also honor you with our repentance. Turning from evil and turning to the ways of the Lord. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.